The old pilot's playing tales. Don't upset the jet one. With the arrival of jet-powered airliners, commercial pilots entered a new world of high-altitude flying in large swept-wing aircraft at velocities approaching the speed of sound. They were often unprepared for the challenge and before long unexpected and unexplained loss of control events began to worry the world of aviation. These events initially occurred when an aircraft was upset from its normal benign straight and level environment and ended up in a high speed dive, something that was rare in the earlier days of straight winged piston powered airliners. Hence, they became known as jet upsets. Coffin Corner had previously been the preserve of military test pilots who drove their aircraft ever higher into the rarefied air, probing and pushing at the edges of the manoeuvre envelope to reach the absolute limits of speed and aerodynamic performance. This was where the maximum altitude met maximum Mach number at the stalling speed. A speed increase might overstress the airframe, a speed decrease or just a gentle bank might result in an aerodynamic stall. Either could lead to a loss of control. With luck, a recovery might be achieved with just a massive change in height and a bent aircraft through overspeed or over-G during the pullout. Jet airliner pilots were now being asked to fly in this potentially hazardous corner of the flight envelope where they often had only 10 or 20 knots between their maximum and minimum speeds because it was here that their aircraft was at its most efficient. Their jet engines thrived on the fast delivery of the cold, thin air that exists at high altitudes. As investigations into mishaps grew, it became obvious that there were many causes for loss of control that went beyond mishandling and misunderstanding the problems of high-altitude flight. There are still several definitions that exist for aircraft upsets, but they all include phrases such as unintentionally exceeding the parameters normally experienced and abnormal attitudes and gross over or under speed conditions. They include limits which are generally around a pitch attitude greater than 25 degrees nose up and 10 degrees nose down and a bank angle above 45 degrees. Speed excursions include flying at an airspeed inappropriate for the conditions or an airspeed versus manoeuvre loading outside the normal flight envelope. Another definition would be an airplane unintentionally exceeding the parameters normally experienced in line operations. The causes of an aircraft upset have grown to encompass environmental factors such as turbulence, wind shear, microbursts, wake turbulence and icing, system anomalies like flight instrument failures, auto flight anomalies and flight control faults. 
Finally, the pilots themselves are another weak link that might cause an aircraft upset because of instrument misinterpretation or a slow instrument scan, inattention or distraction, vertigo or spatial disorientation, or perhaps the improper use or reliance on aircraft automation. There are other human factors that can contribute to the severity and lack of response when an upset occurs, such as the startle effect, which can lead to inaction and or an inappropriate level of control input. In the past, many of the techniques that are becoming compulsory study items for pilots had to be learned the hard way by the examination of previous incidents or, more sadly, accidents. This early example occurred in 1959 to a Pan Am Boeing 707 Clipper Washington a night flight en route from Paris to New York. They were in the cruise at 35,000 feet approaching Newfoundland when the aircraft commander, Captain Waldo Lynch, left the cockpit and entered the aircraft's main cabin, leaving a second captain in the right-hand seat in charge with the flight engineer and navigator. Whilst he was gone, the navigator asked for a 20-degree heading change, which the right-seat captain applied through the autopilot, and then he began working on a calculation on his clipboard. Unbeknown to him, because his warning light was turned fully dim, the autopilot had disengaged itself. The first indication that things weren't going well was buffeting through the airframe, followed by a rapid increase in G-forces on his body. His instrument lights went out, and glancing at the left seat instruments, it appeared that the commander's artificial horizon had toppled and was spinning. Looking up, he could see the stars moving rapidly around, so he attempted to stop the roll with aileron and rudder. He was almost held immobile by the acceleration forces on his body and various warnings were sounding, including a fire warning light and the Mac warning bell. By this time, the commander, Captain Lynch, had struggled back into the cockpit. As he passed the flight engineer, he was reminded that the engines were still at cruise thrust, so as he levered himself into his seat and with the airspeed needle literally wound past the end stop, he pulled them back to idle. He shouted, I have command! And as his artificial horizon was toppled, he used the turn and slip instrument and rolled right to wings level. He saw that the stabiliser was trimmed full nose down, but he couldn't move it with the trim switch, as the engineer had isolated the system, thinking it might have run away. The G began to ease, and the flying engineer moved to straddle the centre console and roll both stabiliser trim wheels upwards by hand. Passing 8,000 feet in the descent, the commander began a strong pull on the yoke to pitch the aircraft up. 
They bottomed out at 6,000 feet and with a sudden onset of buffeting and violent pounding, they began to climb back up. They diverted the aircraft to Gander, where they discovered extensive structural damage, mainly buckles in the skin of both horizontal stabilizers, wing panels, engine nacelles, plus various webs, trims and control rod damage. Analysis showed that after the autopilot disengaged, the aircraft gently entered a nose-down spiral, a stability design acceptable since it's a relatively benign manoeuvre and easy to correct in the early stages when compared with the alternative, Dutch roll instability, which can become divergent and violent. However, if uncorrected, a spiral descent will tighten and steepen, as occurred in this case, particularly since the right seat pilot had inadvertently trimmed the aircraft full nose down. Of note, the crew failed to use the speed brakes, something they might have remembered had they received a modern aircraft upset training. A different situation in this incident, but one that was attributed to an aircraft flying too close to Coffin Corner. Compounded by poor analysis and crew cooperation, the aircraft was a type familiar to our Captain Jeff, an MD-82 operated by West Caribbean Airways and in the cruise between Panama City and Martinique. It was a charter flight and the 152 passengers, bar one, were all French, but the eight crew were Colombian since the aircraft was based in Medellin. The captain had initially climbed to 31,000 feet, but was forced to keep the aircraft's anti-ice system on, so elected to climb higher to 33,000 feet so they could operate without it, since it reduced the efficiency of the engines. Though within five minutes of reaching the high level, the crew had been forced to turn the system back on. What they didn't appreciate was that at their weight, they were at their absolute maximum altitude and needed full power to stay there. When they activated the anti-ice system, air was bled from the engines to feed it, reducing its power. Their maximum theoretical altitude was actually 31,900 feet. With the autopilot set to maintain altitude, the aircraft wouldn't descend, so something had to give. The aircraft began to slow down. It took a little while, but eventually the captain noticed the reduction in power, but he didn't relate it to the anti-ice system. Instead, dangerously close to stalling, and now with a very high angle of attack, he initiated a descent. The aircraft had been teetering on the edge of a stall and in the descent they hit turbulence, which disturbed the airflow into the engines further, reducing their output. Then, finally, the wing went beyond its critical angle of attack and stalled. It was the first officer who realised what was going on and who correctly diagnosed the issue, but distracted by the engine indications, the captain overruled him, insisting that they had had a double-engine flame-out and telling him to put out a mayday. There was nothing wrong with the engines. 
He then exacerbated the situation by failing to lower the nose to recover from the stall. In fact, he pulled it further up. In a situation eerily reminiscent of Air France 447, in less than three minutes, the aircraft plummeted 33,000 feet, reaching a rate of descent of over 18,000 feet per minute, and yet no stall recovery was attempted. Everybody on board died, and the next day, the airline, already close to bankruptcy, shut its doors for the last time. Analysis of the accident after showed that crews should always have access to accurate and manufacturer-approved data on the characteristics of their aircraft, something that this crew lacked. They should also have received regular and appropriate simulator training, particularly since their type was prone to deep stalls. This was the worst accident in the history of the MD-82. In 2005, the same year that West Caribbean Airways shut down, a Malaysian 777 was on its climb out from Perth in Western Australia, bound for Kuala Lumpur. It was passing flight level 380 when the ECAS, the engine indication and crew alerting system, showed a low airspeed advisory message. At the same time, the pilots noticed that their PFDs, their primary flight displays, showed slip and skid indications, both full right, whilst the airspeed indicator was rapidly approaching the overspeed limit. The aircraft autopilot then pitched the aircraft up and climbed to approximately flight level 410, whilst the airspeed dropped from 270 to 158 knots, a dangerously low indication that was accompanied by the stall warning and the stick shaker both warnings of an impending stall. At this point, the captain took control, disconnected the autopilot and lowered the nose. As he did this, the autothrottle commanded an increase in engine thrust, which he manually countered by moving the thrust levers to idle. The nose of the aircraft pitched up again, and the aircraft climbed 2,000 feet, whereupon the captain realised that he couldn't continue the flight to Malaysia in this situation. He declared an emergency and requested a descent. Whilst making their recovery to Perth, more strange events occurred. With his primary flight display indications back to normal, the captain tried re-engaging the left autopilot, whereupon the aircraft banked right and pitched down. A similar gremlin appeared to inhabit the right autopilot, so he wisely decided to hand-fly the rest of the flight. He also tried to disengage the autothrottle by pushing the disconnect switches and moving the autothrottle engage switch, but the arm switches remained in the arm position. With Perth's air traffic guidance, the crew set up an approach, and despite a strong gusty wind plus some additional wind shear warnings, they completed a safe landing. It turned out that one of the aircraft's adderoos, the Air Data Inertial Reference Units, had a collection of faults. 
the controlling software was designed not to flag several of these faults to reduce maintenance action. A status message would have required the replacement or repair of the Adaru within three days of the message, but the software hierarchy, based on internal system redundancy, did not consider the degraded condition of the Adaru sufficient to generate the status message. This meant that vital erroneous data generated by the Adaru, such as altitude, airspeed, Mach number, wind speed, wind direction, vertical speed, pitch attitude, roll attitude, heading, temperature, drift angle, and air data sourced from the Adaru, appeared to remain valid when it wasn't. When the hardware failure occurred, combined with the software anomaly, the crew were faced with an unexpected situation that had not been foreseen, leading to an inexplicable series of potentially serious warnings and autopilot reactions. The crew acted correctly, within the scope of their knowledge, but perhaps the most serious oversight was the complete absence of any abnormal airspeed drills in the aircraft's quick reference handbook, since the manufacturer did not consider it essential. Finally, a China Airlines Airbus A300-600 was making an approach to Japan's Nagoya Airport in 1994. During the approach, the first officer who was flying the aircraft using the autopilot accidentally activated the geo-lever, which changed the flight directors to go-around mode and increased the engine thrust to full power. They attempted to continue the approach by manually pulling the thrust levers back and pushing forward on the yoke, but did not disengage the autopilot, which was busily trying to affect a go-around by trimming the horizontal stabilizer until it eventually reached full nose up. Realising at last that a go-around was inevitable, the first officer started a manual go-around by pulling back on the yoke and adding his nose-up input to that already created by the autopilot. This combined with the nose-up pitch that came from the increased engine power resulted in an extreme nose-high attitude soon followed by a stall from which there was insufficient height to recover. Only 10 of the 271 passengers and crew survived. Airbus had already changed the flight logic for the go-around and had advised their customers to modify their aircraft, but China Airlines judged that the modifications were not urgent. In addition, the pilots had been trained in simulators that had the modified software and did not replicate the aircraft behavior they encountered. Nagoya District Court ordered China Airlines to pay a combined 5 billion yen to 232 people, but cleared Airbus of any liability. Go-arounds continue to be a source of aircraft upsets. Better training and awareness and aircraft performance with proper autopilot operation 
followed by upset recognition and recovery training, remains a vital component of pilot education. In the next tale, we're going to look at some of that training in practice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. If you want to find out about that, then visit AirlinePilotGuy.com. If you enjoy Plane Tales, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Thanks very much for listening.